Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there, ladies and gentlemen, Oliver here. This week I interview Sanjay Dastor, who's one of the founders of Booster Boards, which makes my favourite electric scooter, the Boosted Rev, and subsequently he went on to found Skip, who operate a shared scooter service in DC. He's been around in this space longer than pretty much anyone, and has a wealth of insight and experience that are a joy to listen to. I certainly had a lot of fun with this, and I hope you do too. Unfortunately, the audio cut out a little bit at the beginning, but we pick up right where it kicks in. Before we dig in, I do want to give a shout out to a few things that you should be thinking about if you're interested in this space. Firstly, if you're not already, go and look at getting some tickets for Micromobility America. It's a summit that we have coming up April 22nd, 23rd in Richmond in the Bay Area. It'll be an amazing event. I'll be there in seeing Horace, my co-host, will be keynoting, and we have folks from all over the world there speaking about the best new ideas in the industry. If you like this, you'll probably also like our premium offering, Triple M stands for Micromobility Meetups, which gives you access to exclusive calls with Horace, some swag, and discounted event tickets and more. Check out micromobility.io for more on both of these. Finally, I oftentimes get asked if there are other podcasts in the space that I listen to. There's a few, and I'm going to start giving shoutouts to them if they're really good episodes that come out. One is the podcast The Rideshare Guy with Harry Campbell. Harry started out as an Uber driver, but now covers a heap in the new mobility space. A really great interview he's done recently is with Matt Brezina, who's one of the most prolific angel investors in the micromobility space, and the founder of People Protected, a bike lane advocacy group in the Bay Area. I hope to get Matt on the podcast uh, eventually, but in the meantime, I recommend going there to check out that interview by clicking on the link in the show notes. And with that, here's our interview with Sanjay. This is, uh, this is an interview I've been really hoping to do for a long time. Um, and I thought maybe the easiest way for us to, to be able to um, understand why that is for the audience uh, would be for you to just start off like the, the story, take us through um, how you became a micromobility OG um, and, and your story into, into Booster then subsequently onto, into Skip. And I'll just jump in and ask questions as we go through. But I, you know, I think that's a probably a really good way for us to contextualize uh, how, how uh, and why you're on the, on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, so yeah, my journey into micromobility was very accidental. So back in 2011, um, one of my friends from graduate school, so I was doing a, a, I'd finished a master's at Stanford in mechanical engineering plus electrical engineering computer science, kind of a, a robotics program um, but within, within the ME department. And so one of my friends from graduate school, he had done his master's, he went to go work at, at Lockheed. Um, and he had this crazy idea. We, we had gotten to be friends by riding motorcycles together on the weekends and snowboarding. And he kind of wanted to combine a motorcycle and a snowboard. He said, you know, I want to get through San Francisco, um, but I want, and I, I'm a risk tolerant person. I'm willing to wear a helmet. I'm willing to fall at low speed. Um, you know, the same way you would if you're a snowboarder or something. So he's like, I'm willing to do those things. And um, uh, I want something that I want to use myself to get around the city with. And he had this crazy idea and everybody, including myself, was like, I don't know if this is really a good business, but whatever. This guy seems really into it. And he needed some help on some of the technical pieces. So we ended up working together on the project. And this is in 2010, 2011. And at the same time, one of my lab mates in my PhD lab, we, we had like a, a building that we had to get to that was a bit far away from our offices. And we had to go to it relatively frequently. And he had had a bicycle for a bit. And then he had... I think a short skateboard, but it got stolen or something. Anyway, he ended up buying a longboard. He's like, this is great, Mm -hmm. but man, it'd be really nice if this was motorized. And he was a a very skilled longboarder, so he already knew how to stop with his feet and and use it and carve and everything, but he just wanted to add a motor. And this is right in the moment when drones, like like drones hadn't quite happened yet, but all of the pieces had happened. So you could go to a hobby shop and buy the motor and buy the battery, and they weren't refined, they weren't super reliable yet, but 
uh, all the pieces that now are entering the micro-mobility supply chain, just like with smartphones, like the accelerometer and the processors, all that stuff was at the hobby shop. And so we were able to buy those pieces and put them together, and I connected the two of them, and I ended up working with, with the two of them. And the three of us started Boosted together. And it was a very accidental journey into discovering you know, who was using it, why they were using it, why they were willing to pay a certain amount of money for it. Um, and we discovered a bunch of use cases and, and ended up going down a path of not trying to build a toy, but build a vehicle, uh, built one that was reliable. And no one had really done that before. I think Segway was kind of the first one that tried to build something that was actually reliable. So we were the first ones using these modern pieces. And it, that turned into you know, the, last, uh, the last eight years of work and, and beyond. Awesome. And then, so from, from that, you were boosted right through from what, 2012 when it was founded, 2011, 2012 when it was founded and until. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we were there from, um, so let's see, so we, we started working on the project in 2011 and we just put a little bit of our own cash into it. And, um, uh, we, we almost went and got jobs. We almost went and, and just started working in 2012 because we literally had no more money left to spend on. We're like, well, I guess we should work and we'll still do it as a side project. And then someone recommended that we apply to Y Combinator. Um, he was someone who had been in the program before and had also longboarded. And he was like, this is amazing. I want it to exist. And he kind of forced us to apply in a sense by writing a recommendation letter that we then felt we kind of had to, to do it right and, and apply. And Hold out um, bluff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was funny because we actually thought it was going to be a terrible experience for us. They were very software focused. We're like, this is entirely a hardware product. And I ended up talking to this one other hardware project uh, founder, uh, this guy, Eric, who had uh, co-founded Pebble, which was a smartwatch. It was like, you know, this huge yeah, yeah. Kickstarter success. And so I reached out to him and he was very gracious and met me at the time. And, and I was like, look, they don't know anything about supply chains or manufacturing. But he said, you know, they'll, they'll actually help you with all the other pieces. Like, how do you raise money? How do you hire all the things around company building? How do you think about your users? And that's really valuable. So we ended up applying. We ended up getting in. Um, and, uh, and going through the program in 2012. And we also did uh, Stardex, which was the Stanford incubator for, for students or people affiliated with Stanford. So we did those programs in 2012. We raised a seed round. We launched our Kickstarter campaign. We started shipping boosted boards, the first generation in early 2014, and um, the second gen in the middle of 2016. Uh, is, is when we started that. So a couple so of years feels, of development. It feels and then, like it's been around for so much longer than that. It's funny how quickly these things get absorbed into the into the um, you know into the streetscape, and you just think, oh yeah, of course they, they've always been. Oh yeah, it's 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 always been there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. And so then, so you be so you launched uh, in 2016, and and then um, what was the story behind uh, how you ended up at Skip? Yeah. So you know. Back when we were at Boosted, we, we said, okay, we have the skateboard, uh, people are buying it. And, and what was interesting was, um, one, people said, you know, this changed my life. And the people who were saying it were often people who had not skateboarded before. So we started studying, okay, well, what's the history of products like a Tesla, where it's not like someone who wasn't going to own a car decides to own a car because, you know, now Tesla exists, uh, versus um, products like, for example, the Model T, where people who didn't previously own cars switched to something new. And so we were seeing a lot of that with Boosted, where a lot of the people who were buying it were not previously skateboarders. They were not people who had owned these before. And so initially we thought about how big the market was or how many we would sell. It was based on how many people used it already, but then we saw a lot of people buying it and learning to skate to learn how to use a Boosted board. So as we were thinking about the next steps, like what is the next thing that we build? Do we build a scooter? Do we build a bike? Do we build just a third or fourth generation skateboard and stay in that market? Um, shorter stuff and longer boards and things like that. Um, I got to thinking a lot more about fleet managed systems and making the product much more about the software and the connectivity side uh, versus the hardware itself. And I also started studying a lot more on business models, whether it was an ownership model, a leasing model, uh, an on-demand model, and where, where things would fit. Um, and so we ended up disagreeing, my co-founder and I, John, uh, who's still there and who's great, he's the CTO, about like what direction to go in. And so, um, so we decided to kind of pick a direction. Um, I decided, you know, I wanted to go work on this thing after taking a bit of a break. We've been kind of sprinting for whatever it was, five years at that point, six years. And so I took a break for about six months and then um, ended up randomly joining forces with my old co-founder from Boosted, another friend of his who were starting Skip. Uh, and they had been interested in scooters. And I was like, there's no way that people are going to be riding scooters. This seems so crazy to me. <laughs> They're preposterous. Uh, They're dumb. Yeah. Nobody would look this stupid. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. And so, so that's how we started Skip, was looking at how do we build something that's really accessible to everybody? And how do we build it in such a way that we have um, a lot of information about how the vehicle is getting used and building that level of intelligence in the vehicle from the very beginning versus just kind of adding it on after the fact? 
That was originally called Waybots, was it not? So yeah, funny story is the original, original name was Skip. And uh, okay. we have a sign somewhere. So, so we, were, we were testing, this is even before I joined, but, but Mike and Matt were testing Skip as an on-demand scooter sharing system in San Francisco where you just text a number and grab this, this scooter. But we were very focused on working with the city. We said, for this to be reliable, it has to happen at scale. And for it to happen at scale, the city has to be okay with it. And so then we went in search of um, figuring out how to make it something where they're not just everywhere. And uh, that turned into Waybots, which was actually very similar to how um, Tortoise and a few of these other companies are looking at uh, this, which is an on-demand, you know, you push a button and the micromobility vehicle comes to you. So the original name Waybots was, start, was looking at, you know, how do you basically run this thing robotically between riders uh, and not have it just parked idle on the sidewalk. Uh, so that's why the company was called Waybots. When we started to look at the cost curves for those things and where we wanted to solve the problem. We said, you know, it actually moving them manually makes more sense. And so we went back to the original name of Skip. Oh, wow. Okay. There's a lot for, uh, for us to unpack. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, we will get to autonomous later. Um, but I am very curious. So when when did you actually end up launching? What, you know, in terms of timeframes, where was Bird and the Chinese bike share and all of this in terms of your thinking as well as you were forming these these ideas around Skip? Yeah, so I, I can't claim credit for for kind of all the original thinking around the idea. I think my co-founder, Matt, the one who had been, you know, motorcycle plus snowboard, right? Who He literally had drawings of how boosted boards would get used, you know, four years before they existed in real life. Like he could see the future. So Matt was thinking about this um, for quite a while, something like a scooter. And... Um, and you know, before Bird and before, but it, the China bike share thing was quite interesting. But we saw this opportunity with with small electric vehicles, where we said, okay, you know, these are so fun and they're so easy to use. You don't have to pedal. So you know, he had spent, for example, time in Washington D.C. one summer, and it was very humid. And he's like, I would never use bike share, but I would definitely use something that was electric to get around the city because the congestion was so bad. So he was thinking about that. Um, I think Bird had been live for maybe four months or something um, down in Southern California. And the funny thing is Mike and Matt were looking at this problem, but specifically around how do we go get a city to say yes to this first. Mm -hmm. And that process was actually several months of talking to San Francisco and then saying no, talking to other cities and saying no, and then finally talking to Washington, D.C. And they were like, sure, like, we'll we'll try this out. Why not? We already have a dockless bike share program. We can grandfather you into those rules and kind of just modify the terms and conditions for, for electric scooters. Um, and I think Jump, for example, the first city that Jump bikes were in was Washington, D.C. as well. And so they were very progressive about allowing some of these experiments to run. And so we started uh, running scooters. Uh, in, it was the first permitted system in the U.S. Um, and it was it was in March of 2018. Wow. Because I remember, because at that stage they hadn't got permits in Santa Monica even at that stage. Like the the scooters were there, and because then when was the uh, the scooter apocalypse? When when all the scooters descended on San Francisco, and everyone was like, "Oh my goodness, this is the thing." Because um, that would have been like April, May, I think. I think it would have been May in twenty eighteen. Yeah. Exactly. And, then, and then obviously they like shut everything out, and then they went back to to a, to a system. So talk me through. So with Skip, you you guys had the the permit in uh, DC, then you got the permit in San Francisco, um, and and you you you've been operating there for what what well in both of them for what a year or so. So yeah, in San Francisco we operated for a year. In Washington DC, we'll be entering our third year in March. Wow, cool. Nice. Um, so, and then talk me through like how you're thinking about the the current shared scooter space because it's, the thing that we can see that's happened is there's obviously there's been like this incredible like wow everybody was incredibly excited there was a huge amount of money that flooded into the space and then permitting has obviously really come around um, and it's proving to be very significant headwinds for the industry. Did you think that was going to be the case when you originally went into this and like if not then how how do you think this has played out differently to how you thought it might play out? Yeah, so there's two bets that we made early on that we're seeing kind of just play out here um, or starting to play out. The first bet was uh, cities in the U.S. and Europe especially will have very regulated structures for how these vehicles work. Because what happened in China with bike share was when there was no regulation around the number of vehicles, the way that you win a customer is by making them more available. It's the same thing with ride share when you lower the ETA. If I can get an Uber in one minute and a Lyft takes 10 minutes, I'll use Uber. So the same thing for micromobility that's shared is if that scooter's closer when I need it, I'm going to use it. That matters more than price or you know almost anything else. And so the way this was accomplished in, in China was just put a lot of bikes on the road. 
just put them everywhere. And what what that creates an incentive around is, um, well, one is obviously oversupply and clutter, but also the bikes end up not needing to all work. Because if only half the bikes on that block work, no big deal, because the other half do. And so you just keep going until you find one. This is a, a common uh, experience a lot of people have had with China Bike Share. So in the US and Europe, that dynamic would really not work for a lot of people. And the the regulatory structures, especially in cities, were ones where we're betting, you know what, this will be regulated everywhere. It'll be regulated in London and Paris, it'll be regulated in in um, you know in San Francisco and New York and so on. So we, we made that bet early and we're seeing that play out. Like even Paris, you know, grand experiment, lots of operators, and now they're saying, look, we need to control this in some way. Um, it's because of incentive alignment, it's because operators do not have the same incentives as the cities necessarily. And so if we're looking at how do we operate as profitably as possible. Uh, or how do we operate and serve those users? If there's a negative externality on people who don't use it, then as are we as operators incentivized to solve their problem? Like if it's in if it's in your way and you're not paying me money, do I actually care what you think? Um, yes. And so that's a that, that's a misalignment with how we're using the the sidewalks and the bike lanes um, in a shared system. The second bet was around the hardware, and we're just starting to see some of that play out, but it's a little bit early. Uh, where um, the supply chain, this is what we learned at Boosted, the supply chain is very immature and the supply chain doesn't have the same incentives that we do, where they're interested in selling us scooters. And frankly, if they don't last as long and they sell us more scooters, that's even better. And yes. so there's a misalignment yeah. between who's building the scooters and who's running them. And the supply chain doesn't have the maturity to track through. There's no DOT. There's no FAA that says this vehicle is certified as safe. And as long as you follow this manual, you know, it will work a year later. There's nothing like that yet in micromobility. And so the second bet we made was we have to build custom hardware from scratch. We have to vertically integrate every piece. And we have to work with tier one partners to build those uh, in order to hit the safety and reliability targets uh, that we need. So those are the two bets that we made very differently early on from others. I want to talk through the the permitting um, the permitting part as well because obviously we're recording this now in December 2019 and we I, was it last month I think you lost your the the the, the new San Francisco permits were announced. It was a two two months ago. Yeah. Yeah, two months ago, and and you guys who have been obviously one of the operators, you and Scoot had originally been the, the two operators that had been selected. Um, you didn't get your your permit renewed, and it was you know there's a number of things about it that I don't think uh, were done particularly well, just having been an outside observer, but I'd love to hear you talk about it um, and your thoughts on it and like what that process was like and what you've learned from it as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened in San Francisco was, you know, we, we won this permit uh, to operate the pilot program, which is a year-long program, and that started on October 15th of 2018, and it ended on October 15th of 2019. And then they said, we'll start a new program the next day, and you know this, this is going to be a one-year fixed period. So what was interesting about San Francisco was, was a couple things. The first one is the largest cities uh, tend to have very unique needs. So if you think about the way that scooter sharing has proliferated across many cities, it's a replication model. Let's take the exact same you know, operating hours, the exact same staffing and org structure, the exact same rules, and just put them into every city because obviously it's less expensive. But as, as the cities get larger um, and they have very interesting, you know, like for example, San Francisco has higher property crime rates. And so vandalism of the scooters or theft of the scooters then actually creates additional problems of waste and, you know, parts strewn about and, you know, that's, that's bad and that's a different problem to solve than you might have in a different city. Or there might be wider sidewalks in Washington, D.C. and fewer bike racks. And actually Washington, D.C. said we don't want locks because we actually don't have enough things to lock them to. Whereas San right. Francisco said we want locks because we actually have great bike rack infrastructure and we want these locked things. So you have two cities very rationally saying we want different things. So one of the things about San Francisco is there's a bunch of unique uh, challenges to learning how to make the system work well. And the second was we were kind of already at a disadvantage because people here hated scooters. They had already <laughs> seen these things drop on the street, uh, you know, kind of unexpectedly. There was a lot of uh, folks saying, like, I don't like these things at all. So we were kind of starting with a negative reputation for the industry, even though we weren't one of the ones who had done that. We were starting with a negative reputation, had to build that back up and say, well, we'll hear you out. So we had to do a bunch of really unique new things like we created a community advisory board and invited people who hated scooters to come meet with us every every couple months and tell us what wasn't working so we could fix those things and we couldn't promise we'd fix them but we could promise we would listen and that was really important uh, another one was we invented lock two 
uh, for scooters. And so a lot of the operators said, Lock 2 will never work. We don't support it. We wouldn't want to put it on there. Now it's required by the city. So we had to figure out how that would work and deploy it. We were the first ones to do that. Um, We had to think about hills and how scooters would work in hilly environments because you've got, obviously, higher torque requirements for going up the hill and different braking requirements for going down. Um, There were just a bunch of different factors about SF. So we spent a lot of our time in San Francisco learning how to make San Francisco work well in a unique way that no one had actually had to do before and then work very closely with SFMTA, uh, which is the regulator here, the DOT kind of equivalent here, work with the MTA to figure out you know, what would change and what would be getting better. So it was, it was actually a really great process. I mean, working with them was challenging. They, they pushed back on us when we you know, failed to, to figure something out, said so you have to do better. Um, we gave them feedback, and so that process was really good. What happened towards, you know, by, by the six-month mark, uh, we had served 90% of the trips in the market because we had the experience of Washington DC and our friends at Scoot had were doing kick scooters for the first time. So they were learning, you know, earlier than we So you've been ninety percent as in you did nine out of ten trips on the pilot. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. Okay. And and we were also able to reduce complaints to the city complaint line by ninety percent. So that was another big win over what had happened when they were unregulated before. Um, so that was the performance of the six month mark. And then by working hard on improving things between that was maybe um, uh, that was like the springtime. By May, we had improved enough that the city granted us an additional allotment of scooters. So our permit went up from 625 to 800. And we did that ahead of Scoot as well. So we thought we were actually in a really good position. We were fulfilling city requirements. And then what happened in, um, in, uh, in the renewal period is we applied uh, and we found out three weeks before the end date um, after we had invested a lot of things in ge- being ready. So we said, you know, hey, do we need to have this new type of lock ready on the 16th or can we roll it in slowly? And the city said, you know, you have to have it ready on the 16th. So said, okay, so we bought a bunch of those locks. We had a bunch of things ready to go for the next day. And then we found out three weeks before, actually, you didn't get it. And so that just created this whole spiral of like, when did we find out? Uh, how much time do we have to kind of appeal it? When was the appeal going to happen? What do we do with our team in the meantime? And so that became very challenging for us was not necessarily not getting the permit, which obviously we were disappointed in, but also the manner in which we didn't get the permit. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think in some ways it's a wider risk. This is actually like a, a while it's only, uh, while we're talking about San Francisco, I actually think it's kind of more widely representative of a lot of the industry as well because we've just had a very similar process happen here in Auckland and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Lime found out on the day of the announcement where they were meant to roll out scooters the next week for this new increased massive permit. I think they had 1,500 of the 2,000 scooters that were out on the street. They were like, oh no, your business is dead next week. There's no ability to appeal. There's no process. There's no transparency. Um, And what I'm trying to get my head around is just understanding, maybe in the early days when you're doing trials, that might have been an acceptable way to run things, but but like these are very substantial businesses you're now starting to run with actually very significant like capex and and opex implications for for operators. Um, it just strikes me as challenging. Yeah, it, it's it, it's not. I mean, strangely, I don't fault the cities for it because they've dealt with with an RFP or RFQ process before where they've said who's willing to run bike share. No one's willing to run bike share because it loses money. And so someone has to come in and say, we'll run it, but only if you pay us this amount to run it. And we'll have ad revenue by having a sponsorship, you know, like Citibank in New York to call it Citibike or Ford in in San Francisco will have sponsorships. And a lot of these bike share systems have have struggled to turn a profit. So it's not like people are tripping over themselves to, you know, compete for one of one of the slots traditionally. And with scooters, for the first time, you've got many companies competing for what appears to be these very lucrative permits in each city mm-hmm. and, and uh, basically being able to subsidize unsustainable behaviors uh, because of, of lots of investor money, uh, us included. So we're able to air freight a scooter if we needed to. We're able to you know, fly somewhere on a moment's notice and, and get something done, or we're able to make a hardware change to the vehicle based on what somebody asked for on a time frame that is not sustainable. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's because the cities have to be making decisions quickly and are being asked to make the decisions so quickly. And the way they're structured as well, we'll just ask, we'll have to create it competitively. And then they're immediately getting sued by whoever loses uh, for this. So like we've never sued a city, but a lot of the, the people in the industry have yeah. sued cities that have, have said no. So now they have to create a very legally defensible uh, framework that would stand up in court. And that becomes almost at least as important as selecting the right operators. Because, for example, legally it's difficult for San Francisco to say to us, 
will talk to you about a disqualification if that could be interpreted as a you know if that could be legally challenged by someone who lost later as like hey this was unfair. And so they said okay, we just won't talk to anybody. There'll be a quiet period between when you submit the application and when we make the decision. Um, and and so the cities are set up kind of to to not to fail, but they're set up to make decisions like this because of the rush kind of the gold rush that's happening around micromobility. Um, so I, I don't blame them for that. Uh, I think mm-hmm. specifically here, what we're seeing is, and this is kind of getting to your question about San Francisco and what we wished had gone differently. There's the scoring of our permit, which is one thing which will appeal. But the other part is being disqualified for formatting is, is one thing that's, that's a challenge uh, and not, being, not knowing about it until you know, it's too late, essentially. The second is being asked by cities and us believing in it too, that you should be hiring employees, not contractors. And the reason companies want to hire contractors is flexibility and being able to say, I, I could say to a, a, a thousand 1099 contractors tomorrow, there's no work for you. And I have no legal you know, liability or anything like that, at least in the, the way the US um, employment system is working. But if I have employees, I have an obligation, right? I have to pay them payroll, I have to pay them benefits, um, I have to give them a severance. And so when we invested in employees to not get a lot of notice between when we found out and the date at which we had to stop operating meant that we actually had um, 60 days uh, of payments to make for that team uh, and 21 days between uh, of work for them. So as a company, we were footing the bill for this, you know, this extra almost 40 days of time. We could have laid them all off two months ahead of time and said, we'll rehire you, you know, right before the permit once we find out. But you don't have any guidance on that. So I think cities could do this a little bit differently and, and give guidance ahead of time or give a grace period and say, you didn't get the renewal, but you don't have to stop operating until December. So that way you have time to like wind down operations. But the way it's set up right now, I, I think wasn't great. And then the third is a stay. So it really hurt our business to sublease our warehouse and lay off our whole team and help them find jobs because it's the right thing to do, even with competitors. You know, like our GM is, is now at Bird. Uh, you know, our head of warehouse operations and, and maintenance stuff is now at Lime. And we're happy because, you know, they have jobs. But then to rehire them later is very challenging. So now we have to rebuild yeah. the team from scratch if we win the appeal. So those were things that I think all cities could be doing differently. And it's just a couple of small rules. So all we're hoping is that what we took away from this is something they can apply to the next time around, whether it's for us or our competitors. I mean, this is happening to other companies too, not just to skip. Oh, no, completely. And, and I get it as well. And I also think that your, your point around um, the governments and understanding what they're facing, I think, is really relevant. Uh, and, and, and look, it's... Yeah, I can imagine for a lot of them, this is the first time they've ever had like lots of people banging down the door because they want to, you know, go and do this. And it is a very fast-moving space, and there's a lot of pressure on them to try and get mm-hmm. it right in many ways, right? And then they and certainly in New Zealand, they're get, still getting hit with like people complaining about scooter injuries. They want to be risk-averse. They want to do it as well as possible. Um, I am curious whether or not you think that that will then subsequently mean that the industry ends up evolving into something like, you know, um, a five-year long contract, very similar to what you'll have with like a bus operator or a train operator who then gets to like bid for these contracts and they're long and predictable and the transport agencies have been doing this for the last, you know, 50 or 100 years at this stage. There's relatively good setup and process around how to do that, which hasn't really necessarily been applied because in many ways these have been like street trading permits and not, they didn't have that kind of depth of experience that's come into the, into that area of government for managing these, managing these contracts. Do you think that that's where the industry is going to go? Like, is that the more logical place that it's going to end up? Yeah, I, I think so. The, uh, if you look at the bike share industry, the, the, the pedal bike share industry in terms of uh, docked systems, whether it's in Europe or the US or, or Canada, right? You have companies like Velib in Paris, like, you know, they have a long contract that justifies, you know, installing these docks. Um, you know, it, it, for example, if you want the hardware to last for more than three months, if you want it to last for several years, which we all want, it's very difficult to say, well, I'll put this in a city for a year. And then if it's not renewed the next year, I got to find something else to do with this hardware. You have to depreciate mm-hmm. it over hopefully a longer period of time than just a few months. So I think that's where it'll go is is towards longer contracts. Uh, it's just a question of when. Does that happen next year? Does it happen in three years? And that's actually a big question that's happening on the investment side in micromobility is when does this stabilize? Is it stabilizing? You know, like you said, the permits are creating headwinds for the industry because the growth rates are not what were projected. If the average large market is either not even open yet, you know, London's not open, New York's not open, um, Paris might be limiting the number of scooters, you know, San Francisco says only 500 or only 1,000. So even though the market might be thousands or, or tens of thousands in these larger cities, that may take 
two years or it may take five years to, to see that. And there's not a lot of clarity yet on where that'll go. I, and this is, I completely agree with you. And I actually want to ask you the question because I see, had seen that San, uh, that Skip had in San Francisco started doing a trial or like you were doing a landing page test to see about this move into like something like a subscription-based model. Um, so mm-hmm. some, you know, uh, 25, well, maybe you can, um, what were the details of it? $25 a month, I think. And then you, the scooter would be delivered and collected out from outside your house. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, so we, we were testing, and we, we already have a few users that we were testing with in San Francisco, specifically just a, a very small pilot test, like less than 10 people, to look at, if you think about trips, we see there's three kinds of trips. You've got a recreational trip, you know, you're, um, you know, you're visiting a city as a tourist and you want to go see some sites, or you're uh, going on a date, we see that a lot in Washington, D.C., some students want to go to the National Mall together, um, or there's a, a festival of some kind in, in town, and so you want to, you know, want to go there, but it's a recreational trip essentially. Um, So we have those kinds of trips. Then you've got a second bucket of trips, which we call ad hoc trips, which are, I'm going to go meet you for lunch. And uh, I may not optimize that trip. I may do it once ever or once a month, and we might pick a different spot. And so that's the moment when I choose, you know, do I use a bike or a scooter or ride share? Do I walk or do I take public transit? Or do I drive my own car or use my own bicycle? Like, you know, ride my boosted board, there might be 50 options I have, and a lot of the pricing strategy for rideshare is how do I win you in that moment? How do I make you choose rideshare versus something else? Um, sure. And that's the ad hoc trip. And then the third bucket of trips is commutes and regular trips. These might be going to school. It might be going to work. It might be going to church every week uh, on, on Sundays. It might be um, uh, dropping your kids off at school, but it, there's regularity to it, uh, predictability. You could get in the groceries uh, once a week from a grocery store. And in those trips, you tend to optimize a lot. And so those kinds of trips, you need reliability. Like it's very difficult for you to be late to work on a regular basis because their scooter isn't close enough. And so we were looking at a reservation system specifically to serve those trips, which ends up looking a lot like paying a monthly fee uh, for your own scooter or your own vehicle that you can count on being there for you for, for each of those trips. The reason I found that interesting was because in theory, that is in a, um, the way that that system would work wouldn't be regulated. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be a, oh, the city wouldn't come in and say, oh, well, you know, you can only have a uh, hundred of these scooters out on on the streets. If people are effectively saying, well, I'm going to get the scooter delivered to me and it's mine for the day and then you pick it up at night and carry it home. Or, and it's the same as well. I mean, this move into either leased micromobility or owned micromobility um, because I can see what you're, what you're talking about with the permitting systems and the, the limits to growth that like we're seeing in that space. But I think that you know with these vehicles the demand is still latent you know there's still demand there for some sort of lightweight electric vehicle um, that will be filled it it will just be likely that i can see that it's going to come through from like a lease system or a a subscription model like you what you guys are doing or that people will just go and buy their own vehicles do you i mean do you think that 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 that's a reasonable response do you think that that's actually where the growth is going to come from yeah, you know, it depends. It's funny how the regulation affects it a lot. So, for example, to use Scoot's mopeds uh, uh, in San Francisco. So Scoot, I think, had one of the first, if not the first, electric moped sharing system ever. It was like seven years ago. It was actually right when we launched Boosted. It was when I met Yeah, it was 2012. Yeah. From Scoot. Yeah. And, um, and he had this shared system. And it turned out that you didn't need a motorcycle license to use Scoot, but you did need one to own the same vehicle in California. And the reason was the rental period was less than either 24 or 48 hours. And that exemption had been put in place years ago for uh, tourism rentals of mopeds at beach areas. So like if you go to Florida or Texas or like the beach towns in California, you can rent a moped. And as long as it's below a certain amount of time, uh, then you, you, uh, you end up not needing a license. So if you think about the licensing and the licensing requirement for a moped in California, at least, is the same as for like a thousand cc motorcycle. Right. Uh, it, it, it's the same license. So what's interesting is you could argue, well, if I'm renting a scoot in the morning to get to work and I rent it in the evening to get back and I rent it the next morning and I rent it the next evening and each of those is a rental, is that really any different from me owning the motorcycle? Right. But because of the way the law is written, in one case, you need a license that's very onerous to get. In their case, you don't. But that, that was never the intent of the law as it originally written. So I think a lot of micromobility will be shaped by laws, whether intentional or not. Uh, we saw this with boosted boards as well, where the law that affected them at first that we had to change was for gas-powered skateboards that was written in the 70s. And so the history of how the laws get written are often based on these random emergencies or random kind of uh, you know side uh, corner cases that exist. And 
only then does it become something that actually uh, affects newer technologies later. So I think a lot of micromobility growth will depend on how they're regulated. Like in London, they're technically illegal. Like even, even yes. an owned scooter is technically illegal, but it doesn't get enforced, but it's illegal. Same with New York. So I think that's one part of it. I think from a growth perspective, and this is where I kind of, I, I attend the church of Horace, so to speak, on micromobility, you're not really selling them. There's no demand for the vehicle. There's a demand for the trip. And the, the vehicle is just the way that you serve the trip. So I think there's going to be a huge amount of demand to get places faster. And light electric vehicles in cities will be the best way to do that. And that will be relevant for delivery of goods. Uh, so it'll be, it'll be important for people like Amazon to have small electric vehicles. It's important for me to get around the city for these quick trips. It's important for me to get to work. Uh, it even affects how much I pay for rent or, or to own a home. So like real estate pricing is very tied to transportation access. So if you look at, for example, the rental prices around a college campus, there's a very steep gradient as, you know, you, you're, you're walking, you know, distance increases to become, you know, not great. And that gradient is steeper in, in campuses that have more bicycle theft. So if you're in a place like UC Davis that has relatively low theft and everyone has a bicycle, then the rental difference between a place 10 blocks from campus and two blocks from campus is not as much as in a place like Berkeley, where you have a lot more bike theft and so more people walk and fewer people use bikes. So there's all these externalities that affect what people will use, how they'll use it, and how much they're willing to pay. And I think that's going to be served not just by on-demand shared systems, but also by lease systems and also by, by own systems. I think it'll be a mix. If you were to bet, you know, five years from now, do you think that, that we'll see really substantially sized shared systems? Like this is that, that we will see cities have absorbed uh, scooters, bikes, mopeds, etc., into shared systems. Um, and that that will kind of form a very substantial part of some some mode share, maybe not five years, maybe 10 years, but like that's a substantial part of mode share in, say, for example, American cities or European cities. Um, or do you think that that will predominantly be uh, like privately owned vehicles? Yeah, I think it's going to depend a lot on the type of city and the type of environment. So if you look at cars as, as a proxy for this, right, cars are very mature. You have some cities where owning a car just does not make sense. And some cities where if you don't own a car, it doesn't make sense. And, you know, I, I grew up in the southern United States. I grew up in Georgia and Louisiana and Texas. And I got my driver's permit at 15 and a car at 16. And if I hadn't had it, it would have been very inconvenient. Um, if I were to be in New York, you know, it'd, it'd be almost silly to have a car uh, at 16, yeah. let alone at any age. So, uh, so, you know, it depends a lot, I think, on the built environment around regulations, around the cost of parking and the cost of storing the vehicles. Um, for example, if, for example, I'll, I'll, I'll say, let's say that New York imposed a $10 per ride tax for shared scooters, mm -hmm. but that own scooters were free, were like, there's no tax. You'd see yeah. a huge shift away from sharing to ownership because, you know, same with congestion pricing uh, in, in major cities or the same with like incentives in China for owning bikes versus uh, cars and what, what's allowed to go in the city. So I think it depends a lot on regulation. But I would say broadly, I think own vehicles are going to be really big in um, more uh, le in less dense environments like suburbs um, or for connectivity into transit systems. Um, so, for example, if I live, you know, a few miles away from um, from a transit system and I want to get to the station, that's where a boosted board works really well. Um, whereas inside a city, a shared system can work really well. So I think yeah. it's going to be a mix. I would love to hear your thoughts on vehicle design and and like you you mentioned before that with the in the shared systems you've got lock twos um, and uh, what are the things that you think uh, we're likely to see like that we you know the evolutions that we've seen and that you think that are going to come into shared but they actually that we'll see in sort of like two years from now um, as to how the form factors are going to evolve and what what you think is going to be this is there going to be like an iPhone moment and in, in this um, the shared micromobility world where that becomes the predominant form factor. Like, do you think that we're there with the scooter or is, is there, is there some, something nascent that you can see that's coming that you're really excited about? Yeah. So the, the scooter is one of them um, in the same way that you might think about a smartphone and a tablet and a, and a laptop being used for different types of computing tasks. And those might shift a bit as their capabilities change. Um, if, if you think about the scooter, it's really good for short trips because the amount of time you need to start the trip is basically zero. Like I just step on it and go and I don't have to adjust the height of a seat. I don't have to, uh, you know, unpark it from, you know, I don't, it doesn't have to pull it off a center stand like a moped. Um, 
because they're they're less expensive, they can be more dense. Whereas I might have to go further to find something like a Revel or a Scoot moped, you know, in, in different cities. Uh, so if you think about the the form factor, I think the Scoot or the standing platform is one of them because it's just very simple and it's very comfortable. It also turns out that in some cities, like for example in Washington D.C., uh, people actually prefer standing to sitting on a shared vehicle because their clothes don't get dirty. And so if they're wearing very professional clothes, if they're wearing like a dress or a skirt or a suit uh, going to work, it's different from like in San Francisco, I wear jeans. And if I sit on a slightly dirty bike seat to get to work, no one would even notice. Um, It's very different if you're wearing like a a light colored suit in the summer. So it can depend a lot on those factors. But I think the scooter is one of them. I don't think there's going to be like an iPhone moment in the sense like um, I think it's going to be kind of more like a Model S moment and a Model 3 moment where you have different types of vehicle form factors that actually have the underlying technologies. But fundamentally, there is no like iPhone for Tesla. It's a bunch of different form factors that fulfill different needs. Some are bigger cars, smaller cars, cargo capacity, you know, ground clearance. You know, there's just different kinds of cars that fulfill different needs and are used in different ways. And that's the history of the car industry is a proliferation of form factors that fit these different needs. I think the same thing will happen. You've got something that you stand on, something that you sit on, something that has cargo capacity, like a, like a cargo e-bike. You've got something made with weather protection, but there's not that many permutations here, but there's not just one. There's not gonna be, oh, this is, it's not like the Segway does everything. It's not gonna be like that. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. Um, I would love your thoughts on like the, the you know, we were talking about investment um, and the investment um, space. Uh, and the way that investors are looking at this now, now that the growth potential like hasn't, you know, effectively, I think a lot of the early valuations, especially for Bird and Lime, were predicated on like, yes, it's going to be able to, they're going to be able to continue to expand forever at this, you know, this blistering pace. Um, that's amazing. Um, and like how you're seeing the change in the investment conversation, especially like with the other context of WeWork and uh, SoftBank and, and and that sort of the, um, how Uber and Lyft have effectively not performed as well as they thought they were, you know, post-public um, with this space, because in, in some ways what you're talking about and where you see it going strikes me as, you know, if, if we're gonna end up with a public transport-like model for shared micromobility in the medium term, that these aren't venture returns. Like this is this is this is a business that'll be solid and it's a good business. Like, you know, Transdev is a good business, it's a multi-billion dollar company, but it's not a it's not necessarily one that will generate the sort of hundred X returns that I think a lot of the initial capital that was put in to these businesses might have been looking for. Um, are you seeing that now in conversations with investors and how, how do you think that that's going to reconcile itself with the industry? Yeah, you know, I, I, I disagree. And and the reason is the model at which these things stabilize, if you think about um, companies that sell into educational institutions or companies that sell into governments or companies that sell into enterprise, you know, software companies, you know, if you just think about that as like a, a set of, of things, there's definitely different rules for, you know, what kind of sales force do you need? And, uh, you know, what is the length of the contract? And, you know, there's there's nuance to different sales models. But ultimately, what's happening here is, if you look at New York, for example, um, Uber does roughly half a billion a year in revenue, not even GMV, not even fair GMV, but half a billion in revenue in New York right now. And over 10% of Uber's trips in New York are running, call it like under, you know, seven, eight, nine miles an hour of car Mm -hmm. speed. And where the car is, the trip is less than five kilometers, is less than three miles. Just you know, there's a significant portion of those trips that are actually short and slow, and and they're getting slower because you're getting more congestion. You're seeing the average speed of a car or a bus in Manhattan is dropping like year over year. So the market that's getting served is quite large, and this is the really counterintuitive thing. Um, if I could sell you for ride sharing the ability to go two miles away from here in 20 minutes for 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. And instead of that, I can sell you an alternative that gets you there in five minutes. That's actually worth more than 10 bucks. It is, yeah, now, yeah, I completely agree with you. And, and so the pricing power that's there with micromobility, I think is a lot more around how competitive is it? Is there a revenue, like is there a price war going on? What is a steady state kind of fair gonna look like? You know, is it gonna be free and subsidized for everybody? Absolutely, in that case, there's no venture return if the cities mandate mm-hmm. that you're running the business unprofitably. But I think the need is so large that 
either there will be the ability to charge reasonable fares. And the number of trips that you're talking about serving at scale are so big that this does create very large businesses. Um, now, whether there's, you know, 10 of them or, you know, one of them or four of them, like that's a different question, whether that takes two years to reach, you know, a billion annual trips or 10 years, like those are different questions. But in terms of it being a very, very big thing, I, I still believe that. And so if you solve the right problems in such a way where you have predictability and control of your business, then it definitely becomes something that I think like there's a, a public company, at least one that can exist in the space. Completely. And I agree with you around the timing because I think the timing is that, you know, you, you can have something that's worth a trillion dollars in five years or 10 years time, but it's, it, you know, you, investors are looking for returns within tr- relatively short periods of time. And so that's the part that I'm just trying to get my head around is like, well, because I could see, for example, that cities like San Francisco, was a, it's been amazing to watch them, even though it's been obviously very frustrating with how they've done some of the permitting. But they came out and they said, look, we're going to do 11,500 e-bikes or, you know, in this, in this, in this, um, the bay wheels and jump bikes. Um, and you know, I think two years ago, that conversation would have been completely preposterous to say that they would even think about permitting that number of bikes. Um, and I imagine mm-hmm. we're going to have the shifting of the Overton window very quickly, you know, towards mm-hmm. in like three or four years time, it would not be crazy that there are 20,000 of these shared vehicles actually getting permits. Um, and, 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 and like how, how quickly that's going to take, I don't know. I think that's just a big unknown for the industry. Um, I think it also has to be paired with infrastructure. And I'd actually would love your thoughts on retrofitting of infrastructure and how you how how much that factors into you you know your decision making process around either new markets or um, the vehicles that you're designing and and um, and 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 generally like if you look around at cities how quickly you think infrastructure will be adapted. Yeah, so so that's a great question. And and so if you think about like mobile phones, for example, and and 3G infrastructure, 4G infrastructure, it was always driven by demand. And you could say, well, first we'll build it and then then someone will use it. Uh, But what really happened, at least in the U.S., is uh, the iPhone came out and AT&T's network was clogged, like completely unusable, or I guess at the time singular. Uh, it was completely unusable because all these people wanted it. Like the demand is what was there. So what I'm seeing in micromobility is quite similar where for the first time you're having 10 times as many people use a bike lane as used, as used it the year before. And they're saying, this isn't safe. Uh, there, there aren't enough of these. I don't have a place to put these things. Uh, something's got to change. And the biggest, uh, you know, so much credit goes to people who've been fighting for protected bike lanes for decades um, but one of the most interesting things that's happening about micromobility is for the first time, they're having neighbors who never would have gone in the lane before say, yeah, I'll go to City Hall and protest with you because this needs to be better. And so I, I, the, the pace of infrastructure change could actually be much faster if the political will is behind it. I mean, this is why, this is why um, the whole Kindermord uh, movement that happened in the 70s, like that's the reason why, um, you know, Amsterdam and Copenhagen have such huge bike shares because people stood up and said, we're not willing to let our kids die on the street. And if you can these like before and after photos of what they look like in the late 50s and early 60s versus today where you've got bike lanes and great public spaces and very little car usage because, you know, the city, like there was political will behind it. So I do think the infrastructure can change quickly, uh, but it's very hard to predict, is it a year process or a 10-year process or a five-year process? And that does affect this because the nice natural feedback cycle that will occur here is more people will be in the lane, they'll recognize there's a problem, they'll cause more lanes to get built, and as those lanes get built, it'll enable trips for people who are more risk-averse or that have different use cases or want to take different kinds of trips to different destinations, and that will that will create a virtuous cycle. Same Same with mobile infrastructure, right? Like, the the for the existence of four G has now enabled you know other things which causes more demand which then causes five G and so on. Yeah, Hor- Horace has uh, put forward this thesis before. I, I happen to disagree with him because I think that the, obviously like three G and four G was a way easier build out in some ways, right? Because like it's it's putting up a couple of cell towers that provide coverage for you know a couple of kilometers versus versus like I need to go and remove a bunch of car parks from this person's street where they have very you know. Um, they have very particular views about how this is, you know, how the street should be. And if, you know, I'm, I'm based in this neighborhood and I'm based in this neighborhood because there's car parking and all of a sudden I don't have a car park. What is my other option for transport? Like, I hear you. I mean, I get it. And I, I don't think it's, I just don't think it'll be that quick. That's my, that's my part is, is that I think it, I think the infrastructure play is going to take a while. Um, 
I, I, I advise the New Zealand government at the moment on the adoption rates that we're seeing for micromobility and their decision-making process of infrastructure. Like they're deciding now the stuff that they're going to be spending money on in 10 years time. And it's like, mm-hmm. how do we, you know, how do we get it? So it's cascading back and they're saying, you know, look, you should probably be doing this in the next couple of years. Um, and it's, I, I just, I, I think decision-making processes around that stuff is, is perhaps going to be slower than I think a lot of us in the industry would like that to be. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know how to speed that up, but would, any further thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like it depends on, I think it depends a lot on what people want. If there's people protesting for bike lanes daily, then things happen faster. And if, you know, you get three people at a, at a city council meet, meeting every three months, uh, you know, saying something for a minute each, then it'll, it'll move slower. So I think it depends on the political support or lack of support behind it. Um, the, the other thing generally is everyone in micromobility seems to be in a huge hurry. Uh, you know, we have to create a new vehicle every three months and we have to be in more cities every month. And, you know, that everyone's just in such a rush uh, when, among other things, infrastructure is moving at this, you know, slower pace. I, I don't think there's as much of a rush around this as, uh, as there, there, I think there's more of a rush than there should be, frankly, to try to force it versus create the conditions for it to happen. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, hey, look, I, I want to, um, we've got a couple more minutes left, but I would love your thoughts or critiques on Horace's thesis around micromobility, um, especially the interplay between the hardware and the operating systems. Um, and whether or not you think, you know, Horace looks at this and says, these are smartphones on, smartphones on wheels, there's going to be the development of these operating systems, and these operating systems will plug into, you know, mobility as a service platforms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you see, do you see that, um, in the way that you're thinking about micromobility, do you, um, you know, do you have any any thoughts on on how the space will develop? Yeah, and I I agree with Horace, although I think he uses that that smartphone on wheels phrase in an overloaded way. So, for example, the smartphone ended up being more and more useful than a laptop for many things until it became a much more ubiquitous computing device than the laptop ever was in terms of both units and just, you know, daily usage. And so in that sense, um, I do think the disruption kind of uh, framework that he uses for micromobility actually being disruptive and car, like EVs and cars being sustaining, I think there's a lot there. I think the pace at which these micromobility vehicles will improve in capability is going to be shocking to a lot of people uh, in terms of what they're able to do. And that's going to happen faster than cars for a variety of reasons, including, you know, the list of regulations for our vehicles to be on the road is, you know, a hundredth as much as they are for a car. And so the timeline to comply with those regulations can be shorter. You have more freedom and flexibility to to create better solutions than you did if you have something very, very structured like you do with cars. The the second kind of use of that though is um, is the intelligence on board the vehicle. And there I I think it is hard for me to overstate just how big a deal the intelligence on the vehicle is going to be. And I'll give you an example. The way that a lot of the micromobility industry today is working, all the way back to China Bike Share, is very similar to how a lot of rental car fleets are operated, which is if you've rented a car, you, you, know, you go to check it out, you have to walk around the car and mark on a piece of paper if there was any damage that you noticed. And then you get in the car and you drive off and someone manually checks everything. And then no one knows what happened to the car while you're gone with it. And then when you get back, they like sit down and write the odometer. You know, they turn the key to turn the odometer on to get the number and, you know, hand you a piece of paper and you're done. And that's how a lot of rental rental car, um, like how, that's how a lot of car rentals work. Um, but now imagine you're running a rental car agency with, with a bunch of Teslas and you know the tire pressure of every tire. And you know who was driving and how fast they were driving. And you have a dash cam that recorded an accident if it occurred. You have this wealth of information about the vehicle from safety to usage to driving patterns and everything that you can use to improve the system where it's completely automated. You could imagine running a Tesla rental car service where there's no people because the car just, you know, you, you credential someone with a phone and they go and drive it. Everything's done over an app. Like there's literally might not be any people involved in you renting the car. Um, kind of how it get around and, and uh, other kinds of peer-to-peer systems are working. So that's where the intelligence in that Tesla is crucial and where, uh, at least from our perspective, we've been investing in that for uh, you know, the last year and a half, the intelligence on board the vehicle to understand how it's getting used, how it's failing, what the safety issues are. And in that sense, using things like smartphone sensors, like our vehicles all run Android. 
and we can mm-hmm. update them over the air and update subsystems and understand how the subsystems are running and they can flag issues for us at a very sophisticated level compared to, to how these work. And there's a huge analogy actually with Boosted. At Boosted in 2014, we were able to completely over the air update the entire skateboard. And the skateboard uses CAN bus, which is the automotive standard that's like when you smog your car and they plug in mm-hmm. the cable into the steering wheel, that's CAN bus. The boosted board runs CAN bus, and it did from the very first, first versions that we built it. We could OTA it. I don't know how many micro-mobility vehicles exist today that can full OTA, but like most e-bikes cannot. You know, that's crazy six years later that that's not ubiquitous, but it's also true with Model S's. Like there's not that many cars out there you can do an OTA update on. So from that sense, I think Horace is dead on that the intelligence on the vehicles and using compute as part of how the vehicles work will enable a lot more than just the hardware design itself. Um, and that's something we've been working on quite a bit at Skip. I, I totally hear you on that. I think um, the, the, the final question that I want to leave you with is uh, you said you started out with Waybots. Uh, autonomy strikes me as like the most logical next extension of that intelligence being infused into a vehicle so that, for example, you can um, have a vehicle that delivers itself and all of a sudden we'd be able to open up um, whole new markets for you, be able to go and exist in exurb suburbs where you can just, you know, for those trips. Um, How, given your experience with regulation, given your experience with the tech, um, how far away do you think it is that we'll see kind of like widespread deployment of, uh, you know, autonomy and micromobility? Um, on like a shared system? Yeah, so it depends a lot on, there's a lot of external factors. And ironically, micromobility is much more similar to autonomous cars than most people think in the sense that it's it's showing you what all the problems will be. So for example, if you have an autonomous taxi fleet, uh, who owns the fleet? And what happens, like, like who actually takes on the capital burden of that fleet? If the fleet is running a quarter million dollars of compute per car, like this becomes a real problem because now you have a very expensive fleet. Um, what happens with the depreciation curve of the compute? You know, so if I have an autonomous car that I paid 200 grand for and two years later, all the compute is obsolete because now I have to use like a whole new set of GPUs and a whole new set of sensors and, you know, it's not going to meet the safety standards required. Can you be running an autonomous stack from three years ago, uh, you know, or, or two years ago? Uh, and if not, you're depreciating that car, you know, basically like $4,000 a month of depreciation just on just on those pieces, let alone the actual cost of running the service. So when it comes to autonomy and micro-ability, I think there's a similar question, which is, I think demonstrations of how it works that are relatively robust, especially teleop, will happen very quickly, just like with sidewalk robots. I think you'll be able to remotely log into a, a scooter or something and drive it from far away. I think there's a couple people already doing demos of this, and that's going to be extremely clear. But ultimately, I as a user... I just care about, you know, price and, uh, you know, ETA and convenience. Mm-hmm. I'm lazy and, 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 you know, safety, but I don't care like kind of how it gets to me. And so the challenge is going to be with autonomous micromobility or, or assisted micromobility. Uh, what is the depreciation curve for a scooter that's on the road that has a bunch of extra sensors and radios on it that are now valuable to someone else to steal? Uh, or, uh, you know, how, how long do they last for? Um, what's the vandalism kind of resistance of that? Like you really have to design a lot of shared systems, almost like a parking meter. It has to sit there in the rain and in the snow and in cold weather and hot weather and, you know, a crowbar is applied to it and no one can take the money out of it. That's essentially where you have to get to with a lot of these vehicles. And I think autonomous will have that challenge. The first challenge is proving that you can do a demo. The second challenge, which I think is even harder is fitting it into the business model in such a way that it, it actually, um, it actually works. And so that's why I think, like, uh, for example, DoorDash, uh, as an example, in a food in the food delivery space, is in the best possible position to build their own uh, delivery robots because they are their own customer. Mm-hmm. And so similarly with autonomous micromobility, uh, you, know, w- you know, we can buy it from somebody, but ultimately we're going to know where the cost curves intersect. And the reason we switched away from Waybots back towards doing this uh, manually, so to speak, is because the cost of the sensors was so high and the theft of the vehicles and the, and the depreciation curves were so needed to be set first that like it actually doesn't make sense to develop all this stuff, put it out there, and then realize you have to charge $12 a trip to break even. And this question <laughs> yeah. is, not, is not being asked about autonomous yet because we're so far away from it or the people who are running it are, have huge pockets. I can afford to take a loss if I'm Waymo on a $12 trip. 
but because I can subsidize it for however long I need to, or, you know, cruise in GM perhaps. But yep. I think it's tougher with autonomous microbility. Who's going to bankroll it if the actual end resulting cost isn't where people want it to be? Because ultimately I won't pay 12 bucks for that trip. Yeah, no, no, I hear you. Um, excellent. Well, look, Sanjay, I just want to say this has been uh, an amazing conversation. Uh, you you really are like an OG of this space and it's, it's been awesome to be able to explore the history with you. Um, if people want to find out a little bit more about you, are you you're on Twitter, are you not? Uh, I'm on Twitter, yeah, at, uh, at Sanjay Destour. Um, Skip is on there at Skip Scooters. Uh, Boosted is at Boosted Boards. If you want to see some of the stuff I used to work on, um, I'm pretty easy to reach. Cool. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we will have you uh, with us in the Bay Area for, for Micromobility America in April uh, next year. I'm planning to be there. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on the, on the podcast.